Welcome to the Self-Publishing School Podcast. This is the podcast to listen to if you're an aspiring writer or an author who wants to be more successful. On this show, you'll learn how to write and launch a book successfully, all from the top authors and people just like you who are doing it at the highest level. I'm your host, Chandler Volt, the founder of Self-Publishing School, the author of the book called Published, and the CEO of selfpublishing.com. For free training on how to publish a book that sells 10,000 copies, go to selfpublishing.com forward slash free training. Hey, Chandler Bolt here, and joining me today is Michael Hyatt. Now, Michael is the author of the New York Times bestseller platform, Get Noticed in the Noisy World, and he's also the co-author of his newest book, Living Forward, a proven a proven plan to stop drifting and get the life you want. Now, Michael is the former chairman and CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishers, the largest faith-based publisher in the world, and now part of HarperCollins. He began his career at Word Publishing while a senior at Baylor University, and in the 30 years since then has worked in nearly every facet of book publishing. Now, Michael is one of my favorite people in our space. I feel like he's one of the guys that really does it the right way. You know he comes from a place of integrity uh, and quality, and you know that everything he puts out is quality. So I'm super excited uh, to have him on to talk about his books and to talk about publishing. So Michael, welcome. Thanks, Chandler. Great to be with you today. So I want to I want to start by taking it back. Obviously, we'll talk some about the time at, at Thomas Nelson, but I want to kind of go back to why you decided to write your first book and really what was the purpose behind that book? Because obviously, it's launched a whole arm of your business since then. But did you have that in mind when you first started? Well, not really. And and actually, I think the book you're referring to is Platform, which was actually my sixth book. But um, but it was my first book after leaving Thomas Nelson, and I mm-hmm. didn't really know what to expect. I kind of hoped that it would launch a back-end business because I'd seen so many authors and coached so many authors through that process. But uh, yeah, I didn't really see what it was going to become. I didn't. I definitely didn't foresee Platform University and all that's grown out of that. Now, what, I mean, take us back to to the very first book, like, okay. what was that like? What are the, what, what was the process like? What were lessons learned there? All that good stuff. Yeah. Okay. So at the time I was a literary agent, I had my own agency, um, with a business partner. And so this was back in 19, say 97, when the whole Y2K millennium bug thing was just heating up. And I'm kind of a technophile, you know, I love technology and I love studying it. And I had done a lot of research on the Millennium Bug. And so one of my fellow agents, a guy that worked for us, David Dunham, said to me, he said, you really need to write a book on this because I think this is a problem and you've got a unique way of making complex things simple. And I think you could explain it in common language. So I I thought about it. I thought, "Ah, do I really want to do that? I'd never written a book before. And, you know, it's one thing to coach people. It's another thing to actually do it. And so I said, okay. So I put together a book proposal and we went through 29 different publishers, all of whom they said no. And I was ready to give up. And I said to David, I said, you know, it's just not an idea that's meant to be, you know, let's, let's hang it up and we'll go our merry way and serve other authors. And he said, not so fast. He said, I've got one of the publisher I want to submit it to, which was Regnery Publishing in Washington, DC. Well, they got it. They said, we kind of like this. We think this may be a big story in 1998 and on to the end of the then current millennium. And so uh, Regnery liked it. They flew me out to Washington, D.C., and I sat in a, in a conference room with about 20 people. I didn't have any idea. I was actually interviewing to get published. 
because they wanted to know how I could do uh, with the media. In other words, if we got major media on this book, could I hold my own? So evidently I passed the test. They offered me a modest advance. And so then I began to write the book. Now, here's what's really interesting about that. Of course, I'd never written before, had a full-time job, five kids, very busy, trying to get this book written. It was like I celebrated for about a minute, and then I realized <laughs> I've got to write the manuscript, and there's yeah. a due date attached. And I, and I can't really you know, coach my authors and encourage them unless I you know, can do this myself, so there was a lot at stake. So I got up every morning at four o'clock for weeks to hammer out this book. And I, and I worked about four hours a day on it. But then I was like a month away from the deadline and the deadline was looming and I was about half done. And I knew there was no way I was gonna make the deadline. So I talked with my wife, checked myself into an extended stay um, hotel and banged out the rest of it in two weeks. Submitted it, was so excited about it. And then of course it came back from the editor, totally marked up, red ink everywhere. <laughs> my heart sank. So now I had to go to work rewriting it but the worst was still yet to come because what happened is the publisher called me six weeks from the publication date. Now, by this time, I've told my family, I've told all my friends, you know, and back in those days, we didn't have social media or anything, but, but I felt like I was really extended on this. And the publisher said, I don't think we're going to publish the book. And I said, what? He said, yeah, I don't think we're going to publish the book because we can't get retailers interested in it. He said, we've got about 600 copies sold and that's it. And so I kicked into full sale mode and I said to the publisher, Richard, I said, Richard, you got to publish this. This is going to be a big story. And so I just tried to convince him. And finally he said, okay, we'll print 2,500 copies, but you got to agree to take a thousand of them if these don't sell. And I said, okay. So amazingly, once the book was published, didn't really start off strong, but within six weeks, it hit the New York Times list and it was on the list for 28 weeks in a row. And um, I ended up doing 1,200 radio and television interviews during that time. And the book sold like 350,000 copies. So that was my first experience. I almost quit several times, but the book went on to be a success. Wow. What a story. What ha so those, you said 1,200 interviews. How long of a span of time was that in? Okay. So that was over the course of about, let me just think here for a second, probably about 18 months. Now, the funny thing about it was, is that I had my own agency and then I decided to go back to Thomas Nelson. Now, the book had already been turned in. This was before I found out they, they weren't going to publish it and before they re-agreed to do it. But I went, I went to Thomas Nelson and I told my boss, I said, look, there is this one thing that's hanging out there. I've, I've agreed to publicize this book and I don't know if it's going to be a few interviews. It's probably going to be, you know, a smattering of interviews, not that much. But I said, I need your permission because I don't want to go back on my word to the publisher. And he himself was an author. And he said, um, absolutely, not any problem. I mean, Chandler, there were days that I went into my office at Thomas Nelson and I was doing 12 to 13, 14 interviews a day, one after another. And my boss was great. He just lived with it and um, he was okay with it. Wow. That, I mean, because, yeah, even if you just do the math, it's like that's three to four a day, seven days a week for 18 months straight. Like, that's crazy. It was crazy. And my publicist, it was really funny because initially her name was uh, Sandy Schultz. And she said she called me up and she said, well, I've been assigned to be your publicist, but I don't really like this book. I don't really understand technology. I don't think I can do much for you. And so then I had to sell her. 
And so, so then she kind of got excited about it. And then when she started talking to media outlets, they went crazy. So then I started kind of getting picky. And I said, well, Sandy, I don't know if I want to do that radio station. I'm not sure they got a big enough audience. I mean, she grabbed me by the collar and said, look, buddy, you're going to do every interview I give you. You, I mean, there are authors out there that would be so excited to have any interviews. You've got all those interviews, all these interviews, you're going to do them all. And she was tough and I did them all. Wow. So to take us through the process, you said I went in, into kind of into sales mode and, and, it, and it really sounds like you didn't have a ton of support up front and you had to will this book into being a success. So take, kind of tell us what does sales mode mean and what were the things that you did uh, to market the book and to get so much buzz around it? Yeah. Well, one of the things that, um, that I've found is that whenever you're trying to sell anything, it, it can't be about you. Nobody cares, you know, the fact that I'd put in all these hours writing the book. Nobody cared that I'd shopped the proposal to 29 publishers who said no. Nobody cared that I didn't want to do publicity. All they're interested in is what's in it for them. So the secret to making a sale, I don't care if you're writing email copy in 2016 or trying to shop a proposal to publishers like I was just doing last week in New York, you've got to answer the question, what are the benefits to them? So that's why I kept, what I kept coming back to, you know, like one of the things I said to the publisher is I said, look, this is a sunk cost. You've already paid me the money. They didn't pay me a lot, but they paid me some money. We've already done the work. The book's edited. It's typeset. It's ready to go. There's not that much risk for you. And I think it's worth taking the risk because if this book takes off, it could be big. So, so that's really what I mean is, is figuring out what's in it for them. Got it. And now then from that point, why do you think it was able to go from something where no one was even interested in it and, hey, we need you to guarantee that you'll buy a thousand copies if it doesn't sell to going on to selling hundreds of thousands of copies? Well, I think it's real simple. First of all, it wasn't a brilliant book. You know, that, that doesn't explain it. Uh, it wasn't a beautiful package. You know, it was fine. It was arresting, but that wasn't the reason why. It's not because I had a track record because I had none. I simply caught the wave of a current event that was really hot. And, and there were a lot of crazy people talking about the problem. And I was kind of like one of the more sane voices in the mix that was trying to explain it objectively and trying to be reasonable in my response. And so that's the only thing, you know, I can explain. And, and to be honest, you know, I think if there was one thing I brought to it, um, I was good in the media. You know, I knew how to talk in sound bites. I knew that the show, whatever show I was on, wasn't about me wasn't even about my book. It was about the host and making the host look smart. So um, I figured that out right away. And people wanted to have me on and they wanted to have me on and on and back on. And I kind of became the go-to uh, guy. I testified before Congress, you know, that was newsworthy. So there was, there was a lot of things like that that happened, but it was mainly just a current events news wave that I happened to be at the right place at the right time with the right message. Got it. Now I, I want to zoom in for a second and then we'll zoom back out. But right. you, you touched on a couple things of, of speaking in sound bites and then also uh, making the host look good. That's super important. Something that I feel like not, not, a, not a lot of people do. Can you explain that and how that works? Yeah. You know, one of the things that I was fortunate enough to have back in those days was uh, formal media training. So I, I've actually been through media training four different times now where for a couple of days, each time I sit with a media coach and we identify the hooks in the book and we talk about sort of my soundbite responses. What are the likely questions and how am I going to answer those? So like when I answered your first question, when you just asked me, like that was way too long. So on my part, it was way too long for me to answer. 
but it was a big story, right? So, but typically you want to talk less than a minute because it's like a tennis match. So you want to give the host an opportunity to ask a question and direct the conversation and really, you know, land the plane and have sound bites. And sometimes this happens over a series of interviews where you, you just get these kind of tweetable quotes that uh, do end up today on Twitter and other social media. Got it. I can, I can totally see how you're doing it right now too, by the way, <laughs> which I wouldn't have noticed if you wouldn't have pointed it out. Awesome. That's great. Okay. So I want to zoom out a little bit and talk about kind of your, your time as uh, CEO at Thomas Nelson and really what you learned from that. And then I guess we'll connect the dots to, to okay. what you t chatted about in the beginning where you said it's a very different thing being the coach to people who are writing the books uh, and, and being the person who's writing books. So kind of talking about those differences as well. Yeah, well, I became the, the CEO of Thomas Nelson in 2005, and I was the CEO till 2011, and then I remained the chairman of the company till 2012 when we sold the company to HarperCollins. But, uh, but I'd been in publishing long before I ever became the CEO. You know, I started when I was in college, as you mentioned in the introduction, and I worked in really every facet of publishing, everything from marketing where I started to sales to editorial to management and leadership. And so that really served me well when I became the CEO because I'd kind of done almost everything. So it was difficult to BS me, you know? I mean, when I, my, my people told me they needed something, I knew whether they were telling me the truth or not, or whether they were exaggerating or not. And so I think I became a real advocate for the people that worked under me because I knew what the job was, I knew how difficult it was, and I knew what they needed to succeed. So that was kind of my strategy. You know, I believe in a model of servant leadership and I wanted to serve the people under me to give them the resources, to give them the runway to do what they needed to do to be successful. And I love that. But publishing changed dramatically the year after I became the CEO in 2006. A couple things happened really in a three-year window there from 2006 to 2009. First of all, we experienced the social media revolution. So prior to the social media, the things that were working were conventional advertising and conventional publicity. A lot of that changed with the advent of social media because it meant that people suddenly, authors, suddenly had direct access to an audience where the publisher previously in the media outlets were the gatekeepers and you just couldn't break through unless you had somebody's permission. You don't need that anymore. So that was a big revolution. Then Amazon published the first Kindle. And so there was the digital revolution. We were trying to navigate that as a publishing company and trying to stay on top of it. And you know, we, we forecast that the market would end up about 25% of the market would be digital by this time. And as it turns out, that's about what it's ended up. Some people thought it might be 50 or 75%, but it's leveled out at about 25%, even went backwards in 2015. Then uh, there was another revolution. Oh yeah, how could I forget? Uh, the Great Recession. So that <laughs> was unbelievable, trying to navigate that as the CEO, because our sales, the sales of the entire industry fell 20% in one year. And wow. I had a staff, I had a team of 650 people. You know, we ended up laying off about 20% of the, the workforce. That was challenging. So now all of a sudden we had the fun of trying to, you know, do all the work we'd done previously, uh, but to do it with a lot less people and a lot less resources. So we had to get creative. And that's when I first started seeing really the power of social media. I'd been blogging for a few years. And, and so I really uh, leaned into that and kind of explored social media and, and to see what that would mean for authors. And what, what would you say were the biggest takeaways from that time period that you now use as, as an author, like kind of on the other side of the equation? Yeah, well, since coming over from the dark side, 
to now <laughs> to the author side of the equation. You know, one of the things I've learned is, is we said from the beginning, since I was in publishing, that content is king. You know, everybody, every publisher and their brother repeats that. And we all believe it. I still believe it. But the thing that happened in 2006 and the years following, right up to this present day, 10 years later, is that platform is queen. So it really takes both. And one of the things I noticed, even when I was on the publishing side of the equation, is that if an author came to us with a great proposal, you know, maybe a completely written, compelling manuscript, that just wasn't enough. I wished it were enough, but it wasn't enough. Unless they were bringing a platform to the table that we could leverage, we just couldn't afford to invest the kind of money that we used to be able to do to make the author successful. So I think the thing that's changed, the big takeaway, I would say, particularly for people that are listening to this uh, interview, is that you can't expect a publisher to make you famous if you're going to go the way of traditional publishing. They just won't do it. They're counting on your platform. When I was on New York, in New York last week meeting with the six major publishers up there, that's like the first question they want to know. It's sort of like, okay, you got a massive platform, so now let's talk about what the book is. But even if you're self-publishing, which is totally legit today, you know, that wasn't true back in 2006. It's totally been legitimized. Now I've got one self-published book that I put on Amazon, but a platform is even more important because at least with a publisher, they're going to do some stuff. They may not do as much as you wish, but if you're self-publishing, baby, it's all up to you. Got it. So when you talk about a platform for people who maybe this is a foreign word for them, can you kind of explain what you mean by that? Yeah, just kind of, it's a metaphor, basically. You know, platform originally was the thing you stood on to be seen and heard. You know, so think back in the time of Jesus, he did the Sermon on the Mount, right? Why? Because he could be seen by the crowd and he could be heard by the crowd because his voice was projected over the crowd. And then it got a little more elaborate with people standing on stages. And then we electrified them and amplified them back in the 50s. And now, you know, they're, they're made of people, basically. Platform is your social structure. It's your contacts, your customers, your followers, the people that like you on Facebook, the people that follow you on Instagram or Periscope or Snapchat, whatever it is. But the big idea is that you have direct access to the people that potentially will be your readers. That was never the case before. You know, when you would write a book, you basically, you know, shove it into a black box. The publisher would take it. They would sell it to retailers. Even the publishers didn't know who the ultimate customers were. So we didn't get mail from customers or from readers, very rare. We didn't know why what we were doing was working or not working. But today you've got direct access as an author, and that's huge. And it makes it possible, I think, for the first time um, in a really global sense, for us to build businesses around our books because we know who the customers are. Mm, that's such a great point. Now, so that it sounds like the platform is the culmination of all those channels of direct access to the customer, right? So can you, can you kind of go through some of the principles from your yeah. platform philosophy and really the steps for building a platform for someone who might just be starting out? Yeah. So one of the things we talk at about at my membership site, platformuniversity.com is a five stage model, five stages of platform growth. So it starts first of all, by definition. And by definition, it means a couple of things. One, you want to define who it is that you're trying to reach, who the audience is, what do they look like? These are big words, but demographically and psychographically. And to boil it down to its simplest, what you need to know is the people you want to serve, what do they really want? What are they dreaming about? What is the, the thing that aspirationally um, they'd love to have? 
And then you got to figure out, conversely, what are the things that are keeping them stuck, the things that are keeping them from getting what they want? If as an author, as a nonfiction author, if you can solve those two problems, if you can articulate the aspiration better than they could articulate it for themselves, and if you can help them overcome the things that are keeping them from getting what they want, you'll be successful. It's that simple. But that's all in stage one in definition. You also have to define some things like what your voice is going to be and what your role is going to be with your audience. But that's all in the definition stage. Stage two, and I won't go through all these. I'll just go through the first three. But the, the second one is activation. You know, this is when you take what you've learned and you begin to get involved in social media principally. And the thing that we recommend is a blog. You know, blogging is not dead. It's as alive as it's ever been. And it's the easiest way, in my view, to begin to build a connection with uh, an audience so that they keep coming back to you. Now, we don't recommend people do that on Facebook or Medium or Squarespace or something else where they don't have control uh, over the platform. It's like building a house on a rented lot. You don't want that to happen. If Facebook changes their uh, terms of service and suddenly decides that you know, you're going to be blocked out or you can't do what you were doing, then all your work goes up in smoke. So we believe you need to do it on what we call a self-hosted WordPress site. But blogging is principally the activation stage. So being consistent, building an audience, and creating this relationship with them. And then the third stage is just attraction. You know, how do you get people to come read you? I mean, you know, probably tons of people that are watching this right now have a blog and nobody's reading them. Well, there's a science to that. There's a little bit of art too, but we distill all that into, you know, how in fact you get more readers so that you can build some sense of scale and get an audience so that when you publish your book, you've got people that are waiting to get it. Got it. So can you repeat those three real, yes. real quick? So stage one is definition. Stage two is activation and stage three is attraction. Now, just in case somebody's wondering, stage four is monetization and stage five is optimization. But those are the five stages of platform growth. Love it. Love it. Now, can we dive into stage three and, and really what are, what yeah. are some of those, you talked about building that audience so that when you have the book, it's, it's, you know, you've got kind of this force behind it. What are some of the audience building uh, methods that you use or ways that you recommend? Yeah, well, one of the most important, and this is where I start in my my book platform, Get Noticed in a Noisy World, you got to create content that people actually want to read. You know, one of the worst things you can do is put, you know, anything less than your best effort out there. You've got to write compelling content that people want to read, yes, but more importantly, that they want to share because it makes them look smart, because it makes them look resourceful. You know, you want to create great content. So that's where you want to first start. And you want to write on a consistent basis. You know, the idea of getting all jazzed up about blogging and doing three blog posts this week and two next week, and then you kind of forget about it for a couple of months, that will not build relationships <laughs> with people. So you got to be consistent. So that's what I'd say is number one, create wow content. Number two, you've got to develop an email list. You know, you've got to have a mechanism on your blog because there's nothing nothing. And I've got a, I run a multi-million dollar business now that's all online. And I can tell you the most important strategic asset that I have is my email list. And so that begins with having a simple email collection form on your site. Chandler, I didn't do this initially. I wasn't smart enough to do this. So I started blogging in 2004 and I didn't even start doing this till about 2008, four years later. And even when I left Thomas Nelson in 2011, I only had about 3,500 people on my email list. Today, I have over a half a million. 
but I just didn't see it as a priority. Now I know it's the game. That's, that's absolutely what you got to do if you want to connect with readers. So I have an email collection form. And if you want to biggie size that and make it really work, you've got to create a um, opt-in magnet. And here's what I mean by that. Something that people are willing to give you their email address for in exchange for their email address. So it could be a cheat sheet. It could be an ebook. It could be a series of short video messages, but something that solves a problem for them today, a quick win that gives them or, or uh, entices them to fork over their email address. Okay. So that's number two. Now there's all other kinds of strategies beyond that, like guest posting, like social media, uh, posted on social media. Like today, when I write a new uh, blog post, we post immediately on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and the other social media channels. We think of those as embassies. You know, it's not places where we reside. That's the blog or the podcast, but they're places where we go out and we meet new people. And that's the whole purpose of social media is to entice people to get back to the blog so they can sign up for the email list so that now we can begin to forge a relationship. Hey, Chandler Bolt here. I hope you're loving this episode so far. It's time to go from inspiration to implementation. All right, so if you've learned something, we want to help you implement what you've learned with your book. So what I want you to do right now is go to selfpublishing.com forward slash schedule, book a publishing consultation with one of the experts on my team. We'll talk about your goals for your book, your dreams, your challenges, your next steps, and we'll start putting together a plan. All right, so go to selfpublishing.com forward slash schedule, book a call with the team. Let's see how we can help with your book. It's time to implement. Love it. Love it. And love that metaphor as embassy. So We've got creating consistent content. We've got starting to build your email list and doing that um, by, by, by putting an opt-in on your site, first of all, and then also by having an opt-in magnet. And then we talked about the embassies, the guest posting, social media, stuff like yep. that. Love all that. Do you see email transitioning? Do you see it changing? Do you see it losing some of its power? Or do you feel like it's similar to blogs? It's like people think it's leaving, but it's here to stay. Yeah, I would say probably the latter. People think it's leaving, but it's here to stay, at least for a while until we come up with something else. Now, you know, even in my own company, we don't use email internally with one another. We're on Slack and we use that as a software package that keeps us from using email with one another. But mm -hmm. all of our external uh, communications are, are email. Now, one of the things that's changed, um, you know, for a while, people were creating these beautiful HTML-based email newsletters with branded graphics and all kinds of links and stuff. And I did that myself until a month ago. What I discovered, much to my horror, was that those were ending up, those email messages, which were my blog post, were ending up in the promotions tab of anyone who used Gmail, which was about 68% of my audience. Hmm. But they weren't even seeing it. So we switched back to just plain old, plain text email, just like you would write to a friend. And we don't include any images in it. We don't include any links until we get you know down toward the bottom of it because that's a trigger that'll send the email, in, uh, the email into the promotions tab. So today, less is more. Simple is better. And that's frankly, I think, good news because it's a lot easier to pull off than the, than the branded emails. Wow, yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Are there any other things that you found that help keep your email that you're sending out of the promotions tab? Um. That does it 100%, you know, and we test it rigorously. Every email that we send, we send it to, to some Gmail test accounts that we have to see if it ends up in the promotions tab. But I really think you got to test, you know, in order to, to figure that out. 
The other thing that we changed is I used to send out my full blog post uh, in the email. Here's the problem with that. It gave no reason for people to come back to my site. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't getting the page views and I don't monetize that way anymore. So it's not that important. But people also don't, if they don't come back to the, to the blog, they don't have the opportunity to see all the other stuff that I'm offering, products and all that kind of stuff. Plus, we weren't training people to click. There was no reason to click through. Now what we do, and we've been doing this for a month and it's been awesome, uh, is that we send out a teaser email that talks about what is in the blog post that we just published and we give peop- uh, people a reason to click through and come read it. So, and it's basically created by my marketing department. So it's not you know, me just setting the content, it's me marketing the content and realizing that even though people don't pay for that blog content, in today's noisy world, they need a reason to come back. Mm, love that. Now, it sounds like you made a lot of changes to how you're communicating with your audience and how you're sending an email about a month ago. What, what triggered all of those changes? Well, it was uh, the guy who is the director of my email services said, hey, I just did an experiment. <laughs> I noticed that all these really fancy, beautiful emails are not getting read. And, and we knew there was a problem because we would have people write to us and they'd say, hey, what happened? I'm not getting your email anymore. We were like, well, check your spam folder. Well, it wasn't there. So, you know, we were like pulling our hair out, trying to figure it out. And it's because Google had changed their algorithm, uh, the things that would trigger that going to the promotions tab. So it was just observing and then deciding we got to find a remedy for this because this is a strategic threat to our business. Mm. Okay. Now, one of the common themes and things that you've been talking about throughout the interview is, is the content, right? How mm-hmm. content is king and how that's such a huge part of your business. Now, obviously you have a very like, you know, top, 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 I think it's top half percent of all blogs online. You also have a top podcast and then you're also doing books. So a lot of content. My question is, how do you do it? What's kind of the method to the madness and how do you stay consistent with that content creation? Yeah, well, here's the good news. Content can be repurposed. So kind of the dirty little secret, I don't actually, it's not a dirty little secret. It's kind of a cool little secret. My (laughs) blog is my workbench. That's where I forge new ideas. That's where I test new ideas. And those, all the ideas that work and not all of them work, but the ideas that work eventually will make them their way into other content. For example, if I write a blog post that uh, I get, better than average traffic or that I get a lot of comments on, I know that's resonating. So that becomes then a a candidate for a podcast. It might be a video series. It might be uh, content that we expand into Platform University. It may become a course or it may become a book. So my book, Platform Get Noticed in a Noisy World, about 85% of that all appeared for free on my blog before it became a New York Times bestselling book. Now, the, that that's awesome because it allowed me to blog the content in bite-sized pieces over time and to incrementally write the book, find out what worked, what didn't work, and then stitch it together like a quilt into a book. Now, I didn't just, you know, collect the blog post and then publish it, but I took that as raw material, sort of the ingredients for the recipe to be able to write the book. But oh boy, did it save me a ton of time. Plus it was field tested. Same thing with my book, Living Forward. Almost everything in that book appeared in one form or another on my blog over the course of about three years. And, you know, sometimes people will say, and, and dumb publishers used to say this, to be honest, they would say, well, why would somebody pay for something they can get for free, right? Well, here's why they'll pay. A couple of reasons. Number one, they don't know all that contents in your blog. I mean, nobody. I, I, I sometimes don't even know what's on my blog. 
right? So I don't have I don't have very many fans that have been with me long enough to see every post that I ever wrote on that subject. Plus just convenience, you know, stitching it together in a quilt. Yeah, they can find a square here and a square there, but it's not a blanket. And so when I put it together in a book, you know, it's whole cloth. Plus I'm creating the transitions. I'm doing more research. I'm enhancing the content. So it's absolutely not an issue. Love it. And love the repurposing. Cause that's, I feel like that's, that's just such an underutilized tool, right? So many people spend so much time on this awesome content and then they just put it out once and they're like, Oh man, hope people like it. Hope people see it. Well, it's, it's so true Chandler. And, and, and part of the issue is originality is kind of overrated. You know, you need to be effective. And I think if I had to do it all over again from the very beginning, you know, I thought every piece of content has to be completely distinct from every other piece of content. Well, I think I thought too highly of my content, you know, that it was everybody was reading it. Not the case. I mean, think of it today. You know, the average email open rate is 30%. I mean, that's like across the industry. So, um, you know, at best, 30% of your audience on your email list, which arguably would be your most ardent fans, only 30% of them are going to see any post. Less than that, I hate to remind myself of these facts, it's depressing. Less than that are actually going to read the content. So um, so it, I think it is important to repurpose it because otherwise you're just going to be wasting the content and you're going to be dying of overwork. Now, what, what, like, what's your kind of process for creating content? Is it a batched thing? Is it something that you do every single morning? Is it like, what's your rhythm, if you will? Yeah, so I totally batch everything. Now, back in the day, before I left Thomas Nelson, and I, again, I was the CEO of a company, pretty large company. Um, I had five kids at home, very busy family life. I was very involved in my church. So like everybody else, I didn't have the luxury of blogging full-time. I had to fit it into the margins of my life. So back in those days, when I had a full-time job and a big family, what I did was I scheduled time. This is key. What gets done is what gets scheduled. So I would schedule my time, usually on Saturday morning, to batch produce three blog posts, because I was blogging at that time at about uh, three times a week. Even when I had a full-time job, I did an experiment for 90 days where I blogged every single day, seven days a week. Turned out to be too much for my audience, Frankly, it was too much for me, but it can be done. But batching everything together is awesome. I batch everything today. So, for example, uh, there were three seasons of my podcast when we shot 13 episodes in two days. Or with my blog post where everything would get written, one day gets set aside for that, and everything gets written on that, uh, that one day. Today, how I do it is very, very different, and most people aren't going to be able to do what I do today because I've got a content team of three people beside myself. And my role in that is in the first 10% of the process and the last 10%. So I come up with the ideas. I create the outline. I usually pull a story from, you know, my background. And then I give that raw data to the content team. They go do the research. They flesh it out. They give it back to me. And then I approve it. Got it. Let's talk about that and kind of twofold there. And I've got tons of questions I want to ask on that. But one side of the coin is creating the systems for that to have, it's, it's a content system, right? And yes. then the second side of that coin is recruiting and maintaining a good team. And so I want to tackle into the systems first, and then we'll kind of okay. circle back to the team. So, because obviously it's, it sounds like you were more of the rhythmic 
rider or whatever you want to call it. And now it's more of a system and it's more batched. Like how did you create those systems and what do those systems look like? Well, I'm a, I'm a total systems guy, you know, and I'm a technology geek. So I'm always looking for the edge. So today, one of the things that I, I use and my team uses is Evernote. And one of the great things about Evernote, particularly if you install the web clipper on your browser, then when you find an article that's, you know, piques your interest or you think, you know, this would be great research for something else I'm writing, you can automatically save that uh, blog post or that news article or that bit of research into Evernote. And so it's at your fingertips when you get ready to write. This is a problem a lot of people have when they're writing. You know, they're, they don't have the material at hand and it takes them forever. So I'm collecting all that raw data. You know, it's kind of like going grocery shopping. I know I'm going to need some flour. I'm going to need some milk. I'm going to need some salt. I'm going to need some baking powder. And I got all that stuff assembled. So when I'm ready to bake the bread, I've got all the ingredients. I'm not running all over trying to find it. So that's on the one, um, what I do there. I, I actually use a program today called Workflowy. Are you familiar with it? Mm-hmm. Just a little bit though. Yeah, so people use it in different ways, but it's basically an outliner. Super simple, super easy to use. It doesn't allow you to get fancy with the formatting, so you can't, you know, pick, you're going to do Roman numeral outlines or whatever. It just basically so, shows hierarchy, and that's where we always start, you know, and we always use a blog template, and I do the same thing with my books. I do the same thing with courses. We start with a template, sort of a proven recipe for how this is going to work. So with a blog template, you know, we've got, we, we know we're going to need a headline. We know we're going to need an image. We know we're going to need an introductory story. We're going to need a pivot to the principles that I'm going to teach. Uh, we're going to put a question at the end, along with a summary, that type of thing. So it's a template. So we start with that. And now we're assembling those different pieces. Um, it's easier to do with the team because we make assignments for people to go out and do those different parts. But for years, thousands of blog posts, I did it all myself, you know, from beginning to end. So having a system really takes the pain out of it and makes, makes you really fast. On average, if I'm creating a, a blog post from scratch, on average, I can write a blog post in 70 minutes. I've timed it, I know how long it takes, and I know what the hacks are that are necessary uh, to do it. Now it takes a lot less time than that because I'm not involved in the whole process. Mm, that's great. Now let's switch gears kind of to the team side of things. You mentioned okay. that you had three content, or three people on the content team besides you. What, what's your process or your system uh, for finding good people and good people? Cause I feel like a lot of times in this industry, it's tough because they'll come for like a year and then they'll leave, but you seem to have like really good people that stay for a long time. What's it, what's your process for that? Yeah. Well, part of it, I think it begins Chandler with getting crystal clear on what you need. So a lot of people get stuck on this because they their mind first goes to the resources they have. So they think, well, I, I can't afford anybody, so I'm not even going to think about it, and I'm not going to think about it till I can afford them. That's exactly backwards. And if that's your process, if that's your mindset, you'll stay stuck for the rest of your life. So instead, what I encourage people to do is get crystal clear on the vision. What is it that I need? In other words, if you take all the work that I've got, like I'll, I'll give my podcast as an example. When I was doing podcasting, I was doing everything. I was writing the, the show prep. I was recording it. I was doing the editing. I was uploading it to my host. I was doing the show notes, everything. It took forever. And I said, okay, where do I distinctly add value? And if I could find somebody to help me, even though I can't afford it now, if I could find somebody, what would I offload first? What would I offload second? So that begins sort of a, a, an assessment of yourself, what you're particularly good at. Now, I know for a fact, there's only about three things that I'm really good at. 
everything else somebody else can do much better than I can do it. So getting crystal clear on where you add value. Secondly, do a written job description. And again, forget the resources. Don't think about that yet. Do a written job description. This is exactly what I'm looking for because, you know, if, if this person showed up, how would you recognize them? You know, beyond the fact that I like this person and it seems like they'd be a good teammate. No, you got to be more objective than that. You got to know what you need. What are the skill sets? What are the aptitudes? What are the strengths that they need to bring to the table? Then realize, and this is amazing what's available to us today. You don't have to hire people full time. When I left, left Thomas Nelson, it was me. I was a solopreneur, but I didn't like booking my travel. I didn't like managing my calendar. I didn't like managing my email. So I said, I've got to have some administrative help. So I got, I did exactly what I told you. I know where I had value. I got a job description. And then I, I said, I, I think I can afford somebody five hours a week. And that's how I started. And that seemed like I was taking on a lot. But after two weeks and seeing what that freed me up to do, I thought, oh my gosh, what am I thinking? So I took that person immediately to 10 hours a week. And then about a month later to 20 hours a week. And every time I've done that, the resources have shown up and I've made more money. And then posting those job descriptions, like we've got one up right now at the time we're recording this, but uh, we always post them in on the blog and into social media channels because we feel like the best people are going to be people that are already in my tribe, that already get the mission, the thing that I'm about, get our values, and we just have to get them less up to speed. It's a much easier cultural fit. Mm. Those are great tips. Now, is there anything that you've you've done differently specific to the content side of things? Because I know a lot of times like that's the hardest piece to get help with, right? Because it, it, it's a piece of you. And so a lot of people, yeah. they just go on and on like just doing the content themselves. And for, for me, I found at least it's a tough hire because it, it's like you've got the creative aspects of the job. You've got, you know, there's a lot of things at play there. Have you found that that's different or is it very similar to the other positions that you hire on the team? Well, it's, it's a great question. I think because I came out of the world of book publishing where every piece of content was assembled by a team, you know, the author had his unique contribution and then you had editors and you had copy editors and typesetters and proofreaders. To me, that just seemed like the most natural thing. What seemed unnatural is doing it all myself mm. because turns out I'm not good at everything. So, <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, like for example, if I insisted on typesetting my own book, you know, maybe I can go out there and find a typesetter that'll, you know, do the work for $20 an hour. And let's say I'm making $50 an hour. Would I pay, you know, a not very good typesetter like me, $50 an hour to typeset a book? I don't think so. You know, it's a much, much better return on investment to find somebody that's really good for $20 an hour and me stay focused on the things that are generating the revenue and are going to raise my, my hourly rate. So with a content team, I think you just got to look for people that have those, those aptitudes, people that have been involved in the publishing industry or the magazine industry or the newspaper industry. They know how to write copy. In one case on the content team, we've got one guy who is our production assistant whose only job is to post the content um, on the blog and the podcast stuff and all that. So he takes, you know, he's the guy that's in the back end of WordPress doing all that stuff so that the people that are the really good writers and the, the good researchers aren't messing around with all that stuff. So that's, mm -hmm. that's one of my people. So you just got to find people with relevant experience. 
That's fan- those are fantastic tips because it, it, it's such a different way of thinking, right? Like yeah. you said, most of us look at it as like, oh, I'm the creator, so I do everything, as opposed to coming from your background where you're looking and say, oh, no, this is a masterpiece that has many artists that each do That's their right. individual job. Love that. Love and that. You gotta, and you got to direct it, you know, for sure. But I worked with so many authors, names that you would recognize that produce their content in the same way. I mean, one of the best ones, one of the most prolific, one of the best ones I've ever worked with is John Maxwell. I, yes. And yes. John has a team, you know, and where he really adds value, he is phenomenal at creating the book hook. He's phenomenal at creating the outline. He's got great stories, but he's got a guy, Charlie Wetzel, who uh, heads up his content team that takes all that stuff and fleshes it out for John. And then John does exactly what I do. And then he evaluates that. He adds some more value to it, but it's a team effort. And there's no reason why, why anyone can't do that. It's just, it's a matter of vision, really not resources, but vision. Mm. Now, what would be your piece of advice for someone who maybe is just starting out with their platform uh, in and what would be your piece of advice for them to get noticed by a publisher? Or would you recommend that they go that route? You know, I, I would start with the platform. The great thing about a blog is that you're killing two birds with one stone. One, you're creating the comment, a content that you're probably going to use later in some form, right? Number two, you're creating the audience. That's what a publisher is going to look for. So you take a guy, for example, uh, like Jackie Bledsoe, who's one of my students at Platform University, um, who was writing for a magazine and, and we did a uh, platform makeover for him and we've really worked with him. And once we did his platform makeover, I can't remember the exact metrics, but like his mailing list more than doubled, his daily traffic more than doubled. And he got noticed by a publisher who offered him a three book contract at their initiative. He didn't even go solicit it. They just came to him. Or another guy you probably know, Jeff Goins. You know, Jeff didn't go to find his first publishing deal. Publishers came to him because they were observing that he was getting traction online. And I could give you a hundred examples like that. But that's the value of starting with a blog where you're, you know, being able to build the content. It's a lot to write a book. It's not that much to write a blog post, but to get, to get a little uh, momentum and to get your confidence fueled so that you know you can actually write a full-length book. And then you got the audience baked in as well. So whether you self-publish or publish with a traditional publisher, you've got the audience in the bag, so to speak. Got it. Love it. All right. So final question, what would be your parting tip or piece of advice uh, for someone looking to publish their first book? And it can be platform specific. It can be anything. Yeah. The first thing I would do, whether you're self-publishing or doing the traditional route is write a book proposal for yourself. Uh, To not do that would be like trying to build an addition onto your house without a blueprint. You know, just having the guys from Home Depot show up with sheetrock and two by fours, and then just start hammering away. You know, the chances of that actually fitting into the style of your house and being a beautiful space that you want to occupy are slim and none. You got to have a plan. Well, it's even more important with a book. And the thing that a book proposal does, certainly it helps uh, a traditional publisher evaluate whether they want to publish you. But for you, it gives you a plan and a blueprint and a track to run on. And if I could just add a second tip, um, I never ever write my books sequentially from the introduction to the first chapter to the second. When I get the proposal done, I say what chapter is going to be the easiest to write. That might be chapter nine. It might be chapter two. It might be chapter one, but what's going to be the easiest chapter to write. 
I write that chapter. Then I say, what's the next easiest chapter to write? Because what I'm trying to do is build momentum. Then when I get, and this happened when I was writing Living Forward, you know, I had all the chapters written, only the last one was left, and it was going to be really hard. But I said, am I going to finish this? Heck yeah, I've written all these other chapters. This is the only thing standing between me and finishing the manuscript. So I had a head of steam, a lot of momentum, and it was much easier. What people often do is the reverse. You know, they write the hardest chapter first, or they start sequentially, and then they get stuck and they give up. And that's why so many authors never finish their manuscript. Don't let that be you. Mm. So, so many great tips on this interview, Michael. You're, you're a true legend and you always deliver the good. So thanks for coming on here and, and, and just giving so much awesome advice. And it was really cool to kind of see Thank it you. from so many different angles. So before we head out, where can people go to find out more about you, your books, and what you're up to? Yeah, everything's at michaelhyatt.com. It's that simple. Awesome. Michael, thanks again. Thanks, Chandler. Thank you so much for watching or listening to this episode of the Self-Publishing School Podcast. I know there's so many places that you can be spending your time. There's other podcasts that you could be listening to, YouTube channels that you'd be watching. Uh, so thank you so much. It means the world. Now, I want you to do three things right now if you found this episode. All right, number one, I don't know if you know this, but we've got a YouTube channel. It's a companion channel to this podcast. All the video versions of the episode are on the YouTube channel. So number one, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Number two, if you're listening to this podcast wherever, whether this is Spotify, Apple Podcasts, number two, I want you to subscribe to this podcast right now so you don't miss a future episode. Uh, and then number three, this is probably the most important, uh, leave a review on the podcast. All right. Reviews are super important and help the podcast get discovered by other people. Uh, so number three, leave a review on the podcast. Thank you so much. I'll see you in the next episode. If you're on the fence about scheduling a publishing consultation call with my team, maybe you're not quite ready uh, for that, I've got some free training that I think will be really helpful for you. All right, all you have to do is go to register to sign up. Go to selfpublishing.com forward slash free training. When you do, you're also going to get a free digital copy of my new book, Published. And on that training, you're going to learn the next step, so how to implement with your book. So how to write, how to publish, how to launch successfully. So go to register right now at selfpublishing.com forward slash free training. I'll see you there.